Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck was published in 1937. The story follows two vagabonds as they travel for work in California, dreaming of a better, more settled life. The newest farm work comes with its own challenges as the story comments on poor rural societies of the time. Today, we will discuss the oppression displayed in the book, symbols, and themes, per our usual. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Back at it again after a kind of long hiatus, which we want to apologize for. We recently moved, so we're in a new studio, and we just, it took a lot longer than we thought it would. That about sums it up. We're back in school, but we're back to reading as well, so I think we'll just jump right in. Where do you want to start, Hannah? Well, I think we should start at the beginning. That's a novel idea. It's a very good place to start. Oh, we might get sued for that. That's, <laughs> um... That sound of music. We're not going to get sued. DreamWorks or HBO. Whoever owns that doesn't care. I, I asked think them. it's Disney. No. They would care. So as we start off, we do see a lot of beautiful visual setting. That Steinbeck's used a lot of descriptions of place with his setting. Which I think I think was very reminiscent of the chrysanthemums. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you bring up place, because you're absolutely right. He does do a very good job of painting these landscapes, these beautiful, and with so few words, honestly. It's crazy how he had time to fit that in, along with, like, the plot of the short book. It's interesting you bring up place, because this book takes place in the Salinas Valley in California, which is where, like, all of his other books take place. I just think it's funny that the guy found one setting and was like, yes, that's the one. I mean, he does it really well, though, which I think, you know, if you found something you're good at, like, let's stick to it. Very correct, but I also just think that he really really found something beautiful about this area and that's why he writes such great like landscaping about it because it really is a beautiful place of the states and he also found a very nice reflection of people in this area apparently like because he writes a lot about people so I think just something about the people of this area struck a chord with them. I agree and I think just the way he's setting up this first setting with like this river bank that's very calm and I think it's just some of where we'll see often if it's being used so much. An interesting thing about this first setting thing I want to point out is the it's beaten down by people coming through and and leaving. So I think it's really it's really symbolic there, obviously, of people like George and Lenny that came before them and will come after them, which I think kind of sets for a pessimistic tone of the book. Yes, wow, we're getting into this argument already. I kind of disagree with you that it's not so pessimistic, but I think that's a little bit later on when they start talking about their dreams a little bit more later on in this chapter. So as we keep going, we see these two men start walking towards us, and we see lots of, I think, kind of foreshadowing towards the story because we see these rabbits, and he repeats rabbits so many times. And I think it really does hint towards Lenny and George's dream they have. Well, I don't really think it hints towards it, it's just kind of like... A great piece of evidence. I mean, they they pretty statedly state the the dream several yes, times. I think because like in the beginning though, we're seeing these rabbits before we even meet the men. Yeah. So I think you're kind of getting a little bit of foreshadowing that like Lenny loves rabbits. Well, I don't know if that's quite so much foreshadowing as it is just good writing. So a good writer will introduce something before you get it. So kind of like we're like I don't know. It's kind of like Chekhov's gun, but it's reverse Chekhov's gun, <laughs> where it's like something that's presented is going to be used. And because John Steinbeck had so few words to introduce these characters in a way we will know them and feel as if we know them well, 
I think the rabbits were thrown in there to be like, wow, like we knew about those before. Like yeah. they, they were there earlier. That's it, true. It's just good writing. I think John Steinbeck is an amazing author, and it really shows when you have so few words to use, or when you use so few words, and you can portray so much that is the definition of a great writer i agree and i really like how he starts describing the men as like these kind of nameless figures to start off where you know george is a short guy and then lenny's a tall man but he's just saying a huge man like using vague descriptions until they address each other and i really love that it does seem like someone actually was observing them and wrote down their names as soon as they heard them yeah for sure i mean there's so much we could say about this writing John Steinbeck's an amazing author. That's why we're reading this. <laughs> and then we move on and we see a lot of this prose back and forth. I think this is where you get a lot of... Prose? Dialogue. There Sorry. You go. <laughs> so we see a lot of dialogue back and forth between George and Lenny. And this is where you can see that they are not as educated. And so that kind of gets into the poor rural farmers that we see where they have not as much dictation or enunciation in their words. And it, I love how Steinbeck cuts off different words or spells things differently. It happens later on with picture instead of picture. Mm -hmm. I loved that because you can just hear the like twang in it. Dialect. I'm saying twang. It's a use of dialect is what I'm <laughs> it saying. It is, yes. But I'm saying because it's like just a little stretch down the highway, he says, just a little stretch. And like you can hear the like southernness almost. And then they'll want to stop. And it's just, just a little stretch. I love the just instead of just. You can really hear that accent if you read it out loud. So with these men we see, with them being a little bit less educated, we kind of also get that they've been together a long time. And we see a relationship of like a friendship between the two. It's a very powerful friendship between the two. It's something that friendship doesn't really do justice to, you know? Like it's a fraternity between these two men that they just, they watch out for each other. Mainly George looking out for Lenny because Lenny does have a learning disability of some... An intellectual disability there of some sort yes i do think it also we see do we do see some foreshadowing in this first chapter where they talked about the past and why lenny had to like run away and hide and george says this is where you'll come if anything bad happens again we don't know what happened in weed but something happened in their last farm they were on it's a little bit like the rabbits thing like you were saying earlier it's kind of like foreshadowing but it's a little more subtle than that like it's just kind of flashes of something that we get filled in with or maybe less subtle and more blatant i should say and so then we see a little bit of the dream come up towards the end. Lenny says he's going to run away and leave George because George would be better off. And then we see the first interaction of where George is describing their dream. And it's, you know, he'll they'll have their own farm, their own land. And it's just really beautiful how they lay out this, I think, optimistic scene where George is telling Lenny they are going to have their own farm. Lenny will take care of the rabbits and everything will be good. I don't know if that dream is so optimistic as you think it is, because to me, it, well, and to a lot of scholars about that write about this book, they believe that the dream alludes to the American dream, like Ooh. the the like practical pull you up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like that sort of thing, which obviously doesn't really work out as well as a lot of people think it does. That's kind of a more pessimistic way of looking at this dream they have is that it's the American dream and it's supposed to represent the failings of the American dream. I do like that. I actually kind of saw it a little bit more biblical, where I thought their dream was of a promised land, and that, you know, if they could get to the promised land. Well, see, I don't know if I agree with that illusion so much, because a promised land implies someone's promising them this. But they're, I feel they're like doing that's this George for Lenny. themselves. Sure, sure, it could be George Delaney, but George is also doing this for himself. That's true. I do like the American that's dream. That's why I think better. it's much more close to American dream. 
Wow, that was a really good one. I did not see that as much. So with that, I think we can start to discuss the impossibility of dreams, which I think is kind of represented throughout the rest of this book, and we'll get to it later. But the impossibility of this dream they're having right now, you can kind of tell that George is tired of it because Lenny keeps asking for it. So whether or not anyone really takes it seriously, Lenny certainly does, but does George? That's kind of a question throughout the book. I, I agree, and I think it's interesting though later on but when they get to their new farm in chapter two and then through on where they're at the most of the time, they do meet some men. Uh, Candy is one of them. And they talk to Candy about their dream and get him in on it where he has the money to make it a reality. So it does seem a little bit more optimistic. I will discuss why that's not so optimistic as we get there. So on the chapter two. Yeah. So chapter two, they arrive at the farm. They arrive a little late. They meet a lot of different men there. Some okay. of the men they meet include Stretch. He's the... Slim? Sl <laughs> I was close. Some of the men they meet include Candy, as Hannah was saying earlier. He is the sweeper of the, like, broom. He's an older gentleman, I believe. Yes. And so then we see Slim, who is very respected. Even though he is not actually in charge, Slim just has an air of respect, and you just can trust and respect this man. We see that with George later. He inherently trusts him and kind of, like, spills his guts to him a little bit. I know. And then we also meet owner of the farm, which we only see him here. He's an old man. That's about it. The boss man. And then we meet Curly, the boss's son. They say, wear spurs so you can show he has money and doesn't work, which I thought that was funny. And he wears a glove full of Vaseline to keep his woman happy. And I think that's kind of, you know, a little bit of a euphemism. And then they yeah, also say, <laughs> this is a PG podcast. Um, they also say his wife that he has is a little bit of a flirt. And so Curly has to keep her happy with his soft hands. <laughs> yep, <laughs> very much euphemistic. But we don't ever get Curly's wife's name, which I think does play into the oppression of it as well. Like, she is an unnamed female character. Sure. I guess the closest thing we get to a name for her is Tramp, honestly, which yeah. is really playing into that oppression. And you're right that the girl, the woman, does represent some of the most oppression in this novel, as well as Crooks, the... Uh, Stable hand. Stable hand. Who hands. is black. And they immediately, whenever they talk about him, call him the N-word. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, that's just how they describe him, which I do think plays into a lot of the oppression they saw then. Mm-hmm. A lot of the oppression does revolve around the minority characters, including Lenny, Crooks, and the wife. Yes. Especially because whenever they're introduced to the place, the man says, give him hell. Like, he's supposed to make Crooks' life worse mm -hmm. because he's black. Yep. And that's just awful. I also think we see a little bit that George isn't like that, though, because he does take care of Lenny. Mm -hmm. So I don't think George would ever go out of his way to make Crook's life worse. Well, I don't think any of the main characters we see would, so that's George or Lenny would, because they are, like, as you say, nice people mm -hmm. at heart. But we do see from the other men, they kind of, they treat him differently. So whereas we never see that with George, the other men, I can't think of, what was the other ones? There's also a one that starts with a C. Another C. That's why I can't remember it. Carlson. There's also a man named Carlson. There's another farmhand by the name of Carlson, and the way he talks about Crooks later really exemplifies the oppression between these characters, because he says that on some days they play horseshoes with them, but they won't let him inside to play cards, and Crooks kind of alludes to that later, too. There's a difference there, even though, like, there shouldn't be. I also see Carlson as more of on Curly's side throughout the story, 
where even though he's like stay away from the wife, she's bad news because of the flirtingness and that Curly could, you know, take it on their, it's their fault, not his wife's. But I think later on we do see where Carlson is kind of just worse while Candy is a little bit nicer and Slim's very respected and also a very trustworthy man. I feel like he earns his respect because I don't feel like he looks down on Crooks as much. Yeah, I definitely think there's a reason why Carlson is not the respected one. Yes. And so then we see Candy's old dog. He's an ancient dog and Carlson always complains about him and how bad he stinks. We just meet a lot of different characters and we can already see Slim who really seems to value how George treats Lenny as well. Yeah, I think it says a lot about Slim as a person that he notices how much George isn't like trying to pull one over on Lenny because that's what a lot of the other men think is happening. Like he's stealing his money or something, but George is like, no, I look out for him. Like that's what we do. And he's promised his aunt or something. And so that's just, it really shows what kind of a guy Slim is. Yeah, and that's what we see in chapter three as we move on. They just kind of are staying in the bunkhouse. Lenny's Aunt Clara has passed away. And so he promised his Aunt Clara that he would take care of Lenny. And it seems like they grew up together and they, maybe Aunt Clara also took care of George a little bit. It definitely seems that way. And so then later on we see that one of Slim's dogs has had puppies and the puppies kind of play into this a lot. You know, Candy has the older dog and so that kind of could be a symbol of like new life and rebirth and just the cycle of things as well. Lenny really loves animals. We kind of skimmed over it at the beginning, but I think he that's- He doesn't just love animals so much. He loves to pet things. He likes soft things. So even like a dead mouse, for example, or I believe that's what he told Slim in the previous chapter got them in trouble. And oh, yes. Town yeah. there was called. Weed. And weed. That's what got them in trouble in weed was Lenny's infatuation with soft things. He was petting a girl's dress and she screamed and he grabbed. Yes, that's what we see in chapter three when he's spilling his heart to Slim. And then we also see how Lenny at the beginning had a mice. A mice. <laughs> had a mice. He had a mouse and that he was petting that was dead because he pets things too hard. He's a very large man who doesn't know his own strength. So when he did grab onto the woman's dress after he was petting it, she got scared and he didn't let go, but she couldn't yank away because he's so strong. So then we see Lenny sneaking a pup into the bunkhouse, which I think is just, it is very childish behavior, which I think is another kind of oppression of people almost making you grow up later on. It's an interesting thing we could talk about. I don't know if it's so much growth because I would say Lenny's like being treated like a child isn't really like, he just acts like a child. He isn't really treated as one, like he needs to be. Okay. Like, he kind yeah. of needs special treatment just because he doesn't, like, have full... Awareness. Yeah. He doesn't know what's right or wrong sometimes. So he needs, like, he needs a George to help him through life. Yes. He just sneaks the puppy in, though, and I just think it's, it's a really cute interaction where George is like, you can't keep the puppy, and you're like, oh. Lenny. <laughs> and so then we see Candy's dog walk in and how he's suffering, and Carlson just really harps on Candy about this dog. Well, you kind of get the feeling that Carlson has been on him a while, like you saying, harping about this. But I think for a while now, Carlson has seen like this dog probably years and been like, well, that thing should have been shot like last year. It's in pain. It's old. After a certain while, like it just, there's much quality of life there, which I think is what Carlson mostly argues about. But I think it's the way Carlson goes about it, where he's just kind of rude about it. Sure. And then we see also whenever Candy is looking helplessly at it, he looks at Slim because Slim's opinions were law. Even though we know Candy is so much older, they look towards Slim. And then Carlson is actually the one who takes the gun and the dog out. We are led to believe, even though Candy, it never actually happens on paper, but Candy starts talking to George and kind of just ignoring what's happening until they hear the gunshot. 
It's a very awkward pause. I think the thing that sticks out to me most about this little pause before the gunshot is George asks, anyone want to play cards? And one of the guys goes, sure. And he starts shuffling and the cards around, damn well knowing there's not going to be a game played. It's a very sad little interaction they have here. We also then see Curly come back into the farmhouse and that's when we see Curly respects Slim as well. Like he knows Slim has more respect than he does, but Curly likes to be the big man and pick on someone lesser than him. Not necessarily lesser because we see that he likes to pick on people that are bigger than him in size. He's a scrapper. I didn't say bigger than him. I said lesser. So I know what likes, you said, but, but he likes... But it's because he is smarter than Lenny. Like, he knows Lenny has an intellectual disability. Yes, but that's not the reasoning he picks on him. That's not. It, what do you think it is, then? Candy says this about him. Candy says about Curly... Oh my gosh, why are there so many scenes? I know, I'm saying! <laughs> Candy says about Curly that he gets in fights with bigger guys because if the bigger guy beats him up, well then, you know, that's an unfair fight. But if he beats up the bigger guy, puts a lick over on him, as they say in the book then he won and he looks like the better guy. He does know Lenny's has a mental disability, but it's not that necessarily is why he's picking on him. He's picking on him because he's a big guy. He's a small guy. They kind of really overcompensation is kind of what Candy alludes to. Yes. So, because he's shorter, he has shorter statue, so he's like, he has to prove to everyone else around him that he his shortness is not like a shortcoming of him. Wow, the glove full of Vaseline. He's the, overcompensating. Exactly. Yes. Okay, okay. So that Candy's whole character is built around this overcompensation. Which is not helped at all by his wife, who is kind of a flirty, flirtatious woman. Which she definitely is, but that doesn't, you know, nothing wrong there. And then we also see them get into a little bit of scrap, though. Because Curly has singled out Lenny. He starts trying to fight him. And so Lenny grabs his fist to stop from being hit and crushes his hand. Which, like you said earlier, the issue there being... Well, kind of like we said earlier, the issue there being that Lenny doesn't know what he's doing. He just... It really what happened there was George told him to. Lenny yes. was going to take all the hits. But George said, don't just take it. You got to grab him and stop it. Well, Lenny like had a, not a broken nose, I don't say, but his nose was bleeding. Like he was getting blackened eyes. Like he probably would have stayed there until Curly pulverized him. Mm -hmm. And so, he could have taken it too is the thing. I mean, to an extent, but yeah. I think he would have taken it and then smiled later because oh. he didn't do anything to help to protect himself until George told him to. I mean, it does say he kind was cowering. But it shows his loyalty to George, I think, because oh. George said, don't do anything to get in trouble. Yes, that's true. They have to say, you know, he got his hand caught in a machine and they're going to kind of throw it under the rug, not talk about it again. Yeah, I think it's really funny. Slim there is the one that says, you got your hand cut in a machine, you hear? Like, you, this is what happened. This is what we're going to tell everyone. Yeah, and so that's, again, the, like, respectfulness of, like, they, Slim's word is law. Mm-hmm. And so then we see Lenny is really worried about, can he still tend to the rabbits? And that's, oh, it's absolutely it's so sad. <laughs> but I think in chapter three, we did get a lot of the symbolism of their dream and how it extends to others. Because that's when they were talking to Candy about it. I think it shows that with dreams and hope, it's contagious. Mm -hmm. And then we also saw Lenny's strength in full force. Or not even full force. Yeah. We just saw him crush a man's hand like every bone in his hand is what they say so as we move on to chapter four i think this is the chapter where we see a lot of the oppression so in chapter four we start off with crooks we are in his stable bunk and they just show all the like disparities within it neither bunk is very great but it shows his being even more run down it does also mention that he gets a private bunk though so it's kind of like 
segregation. It is segregation, but in his isolation, like he, none of the other guys have a private room. He's the only one with a private room and he could just leave his own belongings on the ground. Not to mention he's allowed to accrue belongings because they can't fire him because he's like injured. Yes. I think it's kind of interesting that Steinbeck points that out, that like he has a private room, even though he, it is separate. Yes. And then we see Lenny come in because the light was left on and it's dark outside and all the other men have gone to town where they go to, I think it was called Cat Houses. Mm -hmm. Another euphemism there. I think that's just uh, not jargon necessarily slang. Okay. Kind of for the times, though. Probably, For yes. uh, whorehouses. Yes. Brothels. Brothels. Brothels, probably a better term. <sighs> and so then we see Lenny wander in and instantly Crooks is like, you have no right, or you got no right to come in my room. So I think this kind of starts off the oppression because right away Crooks is kind of, I don't know if oppressing is the right word, but he's like being rude to Lenny for no reason. And we see later on in this chapter, he makes Lenny cry. I think it's because of Crooks' previous treatment from white men. Correct, but he's making this cycle. And I think it's kind of interesting because he makes this cycle of oppression because yes. Crooks oppresses Lenny and then later on in the same chapter, we see Candy come in later, and nothing really happened with Candy, but Candy's never been in the room before, which I thought was interesting as well. But then after that, we see the wife come in, and the wife starts instantly oppressing... Crooks. Crooks, yes, thank you. Yes. She threatens to have him hanged. Yes, I know, it's insane. She's like, one word, I could get you hung. And he instantly shuts down. I know. And Steinbeck points out that the like the very character of Crooks seems to leave himself, so he just becomes a blank slate in that moment. Which I thought was really powerful. I know, with the crooks messing with Lenny, I agree. I wrote down that it almost seems like a cycle of abuse where he's taking out his frustration that the other men have done to him on Lenny because Lenny is someone lesser. Mm -hmm. I think it really does play into when someone feels hurt, they lash out and hurt others. Yeah. And so it is a really interesting thing that Steinbeck's commenting on here. Mm -hmm. I think we also see after he's apologizing and after Lenny is so sad and frightened, Crooks turns it around and says, oh no, I was talking about me. This isn't you. It's what's happened to me. Yeah. So he's sharing his story of trauma, but also he's traumatized the guy a little bit. And that's but not. I think it is nice of Crooks to say that, like, to make him feel better at least, because I think Crooks did believe what he said, but he was like, no, no, like, he makes him feel better. So it's kind of like that looking out we get from George kind of happens here between Crooks and Lenny. Yes. I, this is where I got the biblical illusion because Crooks mentions that their little piece of land is just like heaven. Everybody wants a piece, a little piece of land. We've read plenty of books out here. Nobody never gets to heaven and nobody gets no land. It's just in their head. So I think that, yes, this definitely alludes to the promised land sort of thing. But I think it also kind of is more of that pessimism I was talking about because he says that he's seen plenty of folks will come through this farm saying they want to get their own lot of land. Everyone wants to get their own lot of land. But no one ever does. So it kind of like is hammering home that point that the American dream, this idea of cutting out for oneself instead of, as George kind of says earlier in the book with Candy, to provide for oneself and not have to like work for someone, basically like producing for yourself and not for someone else. They use the example of we could go to a circus and just go. So that kind of sets forth this idea that everyone wants this American dream, but no one gets it. I think it's really interesting then that Crooks is the one who points it out. Because of the oppression that black people have faced, they are the ones who see everyone try, and maybe a few actually do succeed, but they feel that they never have. I think it is a really good I catch there that Crooks is the one that kind of has this little bit of irony in here because he's not even allowed to dream. Yes. He can't even dream. Exactly. I love, I think it's just a really good use that Steinbeck has done, mm -hmm. where Steinbeck 
I have to do some more research into him, but he does seem where he was a lot for like equality. He definitely rights. was a proponent of the working class. You kind of see that in uh, Grapes of Wrath is kind of all about farmers' rights, like migrant farmers' rights, which at the time were seen as like vermin in California. So I think that is something that Steinbeck definitely felt strongly about and was educated about. You know, anytime we mention Steinbeck, we talk about the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> it's just those popular works. So then we also see with this farmland, it does give hope. So this is where I argue with you about the optimism, pessimism, because Candy says, sure, they all went in. Everyone wants a little bit of land. I have the money. I have saved money because Candy's older, so he doesn't go out drinking with the younger men. And so he has it saved. And Crooks is like, well, do you need someone else? Like, can I help you? Can I work for you instead? Because I think he does see these men coming together and treating him a little bit better. They're both in his room. They're actually talking to him. He's not lonely anymore. And so I think that's why Crooks wants in too. Well, then instantly after that, the right wife after the in. wife walks in and Crooks changes his mind after she walks out. So I would argue with you that this pessim that the pessimism is stronger than the optimism. I think though it is speaking on the theme that hope spreads. It definitely is saying something about hope, but I think what it's saying about hope is a lot more pessimistic than well, at least for me because I Especially after the ending of this book, I can't, I don't oh, really know. <laughs> but I feel like that's the worst part too, is that they set up these dreams. Exactly. And they all fail. And with the wife is interesting actually, because throughout this book, we see that she could have been in the pictures. Like you say, like you said earlier, she could have been in the movie. Someone told her and that's kind of her dream. Everyone in this book has a dream Yes. and they all failed. Yes. That is definitely a theme. I think of the dreams. Correct. But they all fail. It's yes, my like I thing. I know. I think it's the that the need to dream does spread and the need to hope and hope keeps them going. Well, I think that's speaking more about human nature. Everyone's kind of like hoping for something. They're always looking forward. We're kind of like hopeful creatures. Oh my goodness. Are we about to get like really deep and introspective <laughs> on the pod? Always. But we also see here the wife really does not like her husband. And I think it's a really interesting thing though, how Steinbeck uses white woman's tears. Mm-hmm. Because I think we see it now to this day, too, where a white woman can call the cops and be like, oh, this black man's chasing me, and still they'll believe the white woman, even if she's lying. Mm -hmm. And we see it, too, in another really great novel about oppression and race, To Kill a Mockingbird, where one person's story is enough to overthrow literal evidence where the man was crippled. Mm -hmm. And so it's just insane I, how... Steinbeck noted it there too, where he said, this is so unjust. The wife is a very interesting character throughout this whole book. Because like you said, she kind of definitely plays this like white, like white woman's tears thing. And she kind of is the crux later on, the catalyst, I should say. Yes. But she kind of is, I pity her at least. Like I thought like her story was sad. She kind of, she hates her marriage. She hates her life. She's not happy with where she's doing. She's not happy with what she's, where she's at. I pitied her too until she turned it around onto someone else. Yeah. I think... Well, you, then what do you think about Crooks turning it around on Lenny? Like I didn't you, like it either. But do you still pity him? I do because I think then he apologized. Where he said, no, no, I didn't mean, I didn't mean it. It's me. Like where Crooks realized his actions are wrong. Mm -hmm. Where this woman would get him hung in a minute. Yeah. It takes nothing for her to do that. I also think she is already flirting with Lenny here too where it's like I'll talk to you later I like machines uh -huh. and then she says well I might get a couple rabbits myself so that Lenny will come to her yeah and so even though her life is miserable 
these men treat her this way because they don't want to get in trouble with their boss. Like she has so much power mm-hmm. to get these men fired or killed. I think that that kind of is the key to it all is the power because you're right. She has a lot of power for her position and she uses it, unfortunately, in a very bad way. In a very bad way. I think that's the issue with yeah, her. I'd agree. I definitely agree with that. And so I don't seem to pity her as much, which I wonder if like Steinbeck did on purpose, he didn't even give her a name. So you don't have a name to a face. You can't pity someone you don't know. Yeah. Which I think, again, is oppressive. Like, she is Curly's wife. She is belonging to a man. Yeah, it kind of is that, I was going to say, like, trait. But I think it's a little, like, harsher than a trait. That, yeah. like, issue, like, like you're a woman's known by her relations. Like, yes. you're someone's daughter, someone's wife. Yeah. The anonymity was with it, too. Exactly. Where yeah. you don't... With the, like, you know, the, the crux of the book, the catalyst, you don't pity her for it. Mm-hmm. You pity what happens, but not to her. Yeah. It's the other person. That is true. We're kind of talking around it, but I think... We'll get there soon. <laughs> we'll get there. And so I do think this chapter really shows Steinbeck using the character of Crooks to comment on how white people treated black people and the unfairness of it and how they still treat black people. The white men can dream and speak up to the white wife, but as soon as Crooks does, he's not only shut down, but he's threatened and abused. Mm-hmm. So now we move on to chapter five. Again, we see Lenny's strength has caused him to hurt something he didn't mean to. He's there with a dead puppy and he's just so sad that the puppy has died. So then they're standing, he's sitting in the stall and Curly's wife comes back around. And I think it's important to know all the other men are out. Yes. So they're alone in this barn and she knows it. Yes. Where she was almost looking for him. Oh, she definitely was. She does this all the time. She's always looking for Curly or Curly's always looking for her, Carlson notes, because she's always avoiding Curly and Curly's always trying to make sure she's not messing around with the guys. Yes. And then here again, we see her kind of... This is where she talks about her dream, where mm-hmm. she wanted to be in the pictures, which I really love that. Instead of pictures, it's pictures, and he spells it like that. And so everyone in this story seems to have a dream of not being here. But they well, all... I think everyone in the story does like just have a dream, even if it's not being here, because cruelly we see he wants to be a fighter. Like he, he fights bigger guys. He wants to be a fighter. He's a pretty good fighter, honestly, is what Carlson says. Too bad he's just like a dick. <laughs> slim i don't know what his dream is but i'm sure he has but everyone has one in the store i think that's yes. kind of the whole point of it yes that's why i said they all seem to want something better and so i think that is the central theme of the book mm-hmm. is like that hope and dream for the next thing definitely the american dream yeah yes the uh, allegory for it mm-hmm. and so then we see later on he's just talking and he's like Lenny just talks about his rabbits, and he wants the rabbits and she goes oh you don't think about anything about rabbits and lenny says i like to pet nice things and this is where it goes downhill. Because <laughs> then she says, well, pet my hair. My hair is so soft. And so he does. But again, Lenny doesn't understand his own strength. He starts petting too roughly, and she tells him to stop. His hands get caught. And she starts to kind of yell a little bit louder. Mm-hmm. She's like, stop, stop. And so he knows that he's not supposed to be here. She's not supposed to be there. He's going to get in trouble if he gets caught. So he covers her mouth. And bad things happen. Covers her mouth a bit too roughly, I think, and he snaps her neck and she dies. And he knows he messed up. He knows he committed a mistake, just like Doris told him not to. He understands that it was wrong, I think, which is really interesting because it kind of, it shows some development with Lenny. Earlier in the 
prologue chapter one it kind of shows that he was forgetting things a lot like he didn't really understand things so much but this like he remembered so it was kind of like a good advancement for Lenny but of course it was about something terrible yes so he knows he messed up and he goes and runs off to the spot George told him to before if he ever did anything wrong he hides her with hay and then he remembers to hide if he ever did anything wrong and this is where I finally realized that Curly's wife didn't have a name because it said Curly's wife lay on her back and she was half covered with hay even in her death we never get her name and so this is where I think you don't pity her as much for being dead like that mm-hmm. she was killed. You pity Lenny because he did it. Yeah, you're upset with the wife for getting, like, for continually being around him and trying to, like, seek out situations with him alone. I think it's a very interesting commentary that Steinbeck's pulling here. Mm-hmm. Where it, you're not, you're blaming the victim almost. Mm-hmm. And how do you come to terms with that when she definitely was not asking for it, but she invited him to touch his hair? How do you, how do you come to terms with that? Yeah. I don't know. By all accounts, I think she was... I don't know if she was in the wrong, but she was definitely continually being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, yes. by her own doing. And so it's so just... It's kind of like, for me, an issue of risk versus reward, because she was risking herself by, like... George knew what could happen with her if her and Lenny were there together, so he expressively told Lenny, don't be with her alone. Yes. Especially knowing how she was. Yes. So I don't know. I, I don't blame the wife, but I, and I don't blame Lenny. It just kind of... It's a lose-lose situation. Exactly. Yes. And so then we also see that Candy comes in and finds the body. He goes and gets George. He's like, what do you think happened? And he's like, well, you you know what happened. (laughs) And so they run out and Curly asks, or Candy asks, can we still have our dream? Can we still have a nice place to live? George says, I think I knowed from the first time I think, I knowed we'd never do her. He used to like to hear about it so much. I got to thinking maybe we could. So this, I think... Is really where the pessimism, 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 pessimism? Yeah. That's a very strange word. Shows through in this story because this is George admitting, even from the beginning, I never knew, I never thought we'd do her. And he's just, he's saying out loud that his dream was impossible. I think it's another thing about hope is a fragile thing. It's easily taken away. That's another theme we see that it's just so fragile. And so maybe even Curly's wife is a symbol of hope. And just how, and all the innocent creatures too are a symbol of hope and how easily they are taken away. I definitely think she was a symbol of hope because she had her own dream. Lenny kind of took it away, took her life away. So Lenny kind of lost his hope for him and George. And then later on, to back up this argument a little bit more of her being a symbol, Candy instantly blames the wife. He says, you, you goddamn tramp, you done it, didn't you? I suppose you're glad. Everybody knew you'd mess things up. And so... He's hurt because his dream has been taken away, so he's blaming it on her. So you almost blame your hope. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you even want to hope for something? Well, I think that kind of brings up an interesting point that, like, if you don't ever hope, you're not ever let down. So, like, it's very pessimistic. It's very pessimistic. Ugh, you're converting my mind. <laughs> and I don't know. The story's, yeah, it's yeah. downhill from here on out. And so then Curly finds out, instantly wants him dead. He knows who's done it, and... We just, this is where we see the real conflict of the story happen. The whole time, Lenny couldn't control his strength, and then he freaked out about her screaming, thinking that would get him in trouble, so he ended up in more. And so, I think there's another theme of, you know, escaping your trouble leads to more, which gets into, like, Greek mythology stuff. That's fun. Some ancient Greek tragedy here. I think it's a fun theme to kind of pulled upon. Yeah, it definitely does seem kind of tragedy. Not enough deaths, not nearly enough deaths. 
And so I really think the turn from chapter five to chapter six, where they talk about old Candy laying down the hay and covered his eyes with his arm, seemingly with the woman's body, and then it's the deep green pool of the Salinas River was still in the late afternoon. Like just that absolute crazy change of like beautifulness. Mm-hmm. I just, it's a really weird from a desolate and depressing one to this absolute beautiful scenery. He's yeah, it's creating. kind of a callback to the first chapter too. Yes, it is. And so then we found that Lenny did hide away into where he was supposed to and George finds him first. Well, we kind of get an interesting viewpoint into Lenny's mind in this chapter. He talks to himself as the giant bunny yes. that appears in his head. Yes, I did I did point that out as well. Sorry, I skipped over it. But he has imaginary friends. He's like seeing his consciousness mm -hmm. and it doesn't really seem like he has a true grip on reality. Exactly. And so if this is something he's been dealing with his whole life, it does give you a little window into his psyche. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That was a really good phrase, dang. And so then George finds him after this interaction with his own mental images and George is like, oh, I'm not going to leave you. And you just see George being very kind to Lenny. Just as he always is, I think. It's important to know. Yes, but this seems a little bit more kind because he says, ain't you going to give me hell? And he goes, nah. He's yeah, like, surely you've exactly. before. I think that's why it seems softer. I think this is just how George always pretty much treats Lenny after he's done something wrong because even at the beginning when Lenny asks for ketchup, George is nicer to him after he, like, snaps at him. Yes. So I think that's what's kind of happening here. We just skipped the snap. Yes, and so I think it does allude to something's about to happen. Oh, for sure. Um, one thing I we skipped over earlier, that I really wish I hadn't, is Candy is very upset that he did not kill his own dog. I don't know if he was very upset, but he showed a lot of remorse for it, for sure. He talks to George about how he should have done it himself. Mm -hmm. and I think that conversation really sticks with George, which we see here It later definitely on. does stick with George. Because as we see later on, George just kind of is talking to Lenny, talk, telling them about their dream. He says, you can care for the rabbits, you can do this. And then shoots him in the back of the head. Because <sighs> he has Lenny look away, and they thought originally Lenny had taken the gun, but George had taken it. And I think it's just what Candy had said really stuck out with him. That George couldn't let anyone else do this because he was in charge of Lenny. And I think George kind of blames himself for what happened. I don't know if George blames himself, but I think George just got really tired of the same thing happening. This is what happened in Weed. This is what happened presumably before Weed. This is what will happen presumably after Weed, which this did happen after Weed, sorry. But this will continue to happen after this, except there is no after this because Lenny really messed up this time. And Lenny was going to get killed mm -hmm. because if the other men found him. I just think George almost feels like he's doing, I don't want to say a favor. No, but I think that's how George like is putting it in his head is he would rather himself do it out of like, like mercy mercy almost. yes that's the word it's i don't know it brings up an interesting argu argument for like euthanasia yeah, oh goodness i don't think we want to get into this <laughs> definitely not but yeah and so but you're definitely supposed to i think draw illusions or draw comparisons rather between Curly's dog yes. and Lenny. Yes, and so then Slim comes and he sees a, Slim's the one who kind of talks to him a little bit more after you know, Carlson's like, oh, how'd you do it? Did he have my gun? And Carlson's like, yeah, way to go. And so then Slim is the one who's like, come on, George. Me and you will go get in and get a drink. And he goes, yeah, a drink. And Slim is kind of comforting George. where He's like, you had to. Like, I swear you had to. And Curly and Carlson, this is the last line. Curly and Carlson looked after them. And Carlson said, now what the hell do you suppose is eating them two guys? And, like, that's where you also see 
that this cycle of oppression is not done with this death. And I think, dang it, you're right. It is pessimistic. Ugh. Carlson doesn't have any empathy. And I think this really did make me respect Slim more. But Slim's not the majority. Like, mm -hmm. the Curlies and the Carlsons of the world are the majority. Well, I think even Slim knows that. And that's kind of why he talked George into doing what George did. It's just <laughs> Slim kind of did. He's, he was like, yeah, we can keep him alive. We can put him in jail, but not with Curly there. Yeah. We just can't do it with Curly there. So someone's got to kill him. Yeah. And I think Slim was kind of alluding that George should do it. Yes, because he didn't... Curly... Not saying he would have tortured him, but he would not have. He would have made Lenny scared before he died. Mm -hmm. Where George comforted him. Look before across it the river, see the rabbits, can't you? And then bang, <sighs> boom, shot. Oh, it's such a sad ending to the story. It really is. So that's why I think definitely just the way the story ends out. It's very pessimistic. I agree. It is so pessimistic, but I also think it is playing on the theme of hope is a fragile thing, mm -hmm. and that we're all dreaming. But we're not all going to get our dreams. Well, I don't know. I think that whole theme is kind of undone by the existence of Crooks. Because Crooks, as a character, kind of states that, like, not all of us get hope. So I think Crooks' existence kind of kind of perverts that theme that Steinbeck, like, cultivated. I think he did it on purpose. He cultivated this theme of, like, hope. And how everyone gets their own hope. And then he throws Crooks' speech into it to Lenny. And it's just like, Crooks never got that hope. Crooks didn't get anything. And so... I definitely think Steinbeck is doing a lot of social commentary with oh, his Oh, for work. sure, yeah. I think he does it with a lot of his works. I think we saw it with the Chrysanthemums when he was talking about a woman's role and how men treat women as mm -hmm. well. And so I think reading more works from authors shows you a lot more about their other ones. I would definitely agree. And I have a question for you now that you mentioned that. So, like, you said some earlier this week about how why... It was interesting to you that Of Mice and Men was more heavily studied, like in classes, than Animal Farm. Yes. So, why do you think that is? So, I kind of thought that Of Mice and Men is not as interesting as Animal Farm was. Like, Animal Farm was two episodes for us. We were so into it. And I think it does come down to, I don't know. I think so I think you just touched on it is the thing. That's why I asked you. It's the relevance. So that story, the story is still kind of relevant. It's not, not kind of, very relevant to us. Like about hope and about like even the American dream today is still kind of relevant. Well, it's still very relevant and how yes. it's like, it's unattainable to the average person. And this whole like dreams being crushed thing, which is very pessimistic, but I think is kind of what a lot of people are experiencing. One thing though I will say is when I first read this back in my freshman year of high school, I don't think I got as deep into it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these stories and books we're doing do require some deeper dives when we're older and we can think a little bit more critically. I think you're right because I remember in high school too, I, I just looked at it as a cut and dry book. Like it's a story, these two farmhands, one shoots the other, that's it. Yes, but, and like I remember people always going around like George killed Lenny and you don't understand it is that like, like a meme. Yeah. it is, like the <laughs> significance of it until you're older of uh -huh. like, you know, having to make that decision. I think you also could call upon, like, people who have to make the decision for, like, their parents or maybe some loved ones who have to, like, pull the plug. Like, how do you make that choice to potentially end someone's life? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I do think we got a little bit more into of mice, or, sorry, we got a little bit more into Animal Farm, possibly because we're a little bit more passionate about that revolution and just how interesting that is. And that is so allegorical that we can call back onto history about it. While this one is purely fictional, but probably has a lot of cultural relevance and significance today.
Yeah, for sure. So, I don't think it was as boring as I thought. I didn't think it was boring, but I definitely didn't think, like, from high school, I mean. I, didn't, I never thought it was boring, per se, but I definitely didn't think it was as interesting as other books I've read. Yes, and so, I think I had a little bit more oomph to talk about Animal Farm because of all the allegory. Mm -hmm. Well, here I was like, it's just a cut and dry story, but it's not. Well, no story is cut and dry, I would oh, argue. Oh, obviously not. Anything else you want to touch on? I think we're good. Okay. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining. We're so sorry this has been so late. But hopefully your hot book summer was so hot, so booky, and such a great summer. Let us know what you guys read. Email us, and we'll see you next time. Hopefully we can get back to school and talk about some of our favorites from when we were in school. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time as we discuss The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin.